Today we're going to have Dr. Nirav Shah, who's the Associate Program Director of Pulmonary Critical Care here, uh, did his uh, pulmonary training here at Critical Care at the NIH, and is a not a jack of all trades and a master of none, but a master of many trades, this uh, triple thread of research, clinical skills, and teaching. And thank you for coming here today, Dr. Shah. No problem. No problem, Mike. Here, here's $10 for saying all that. Yeah, I know you will. Mike's demolishing an old house and building a new one, so he probably would be like, hey, if you can throw in a little bit extra for that. Um, so today I'm going to talk about waveforms. Hopefully it won't be too basic for, for some of you guys who've been doing critical care for a little bit, but what we've noticed is that people really don't recognize what they should recognize on the ventilator. When we're in the ICU, the last thing we should be doing is deferring all of the ventilator management to the respiratory therapist. They're there to execute kind of what we want them to do, but we should be able to recognize what's going on. And I can't tell you how many times I've come in for an evening shift or, or a night shift in the medical ICU and just on rounds walking from bed one to bed 29, picked up four or five patients that had significant ventilator dyssynchrony. Whenever we do an intervention for a patient, we want to make sure that we're doing an intervention that's going to result in them having a positive benefit from that intervention, whether it be a surgical intervention, whether it be whether it's CRRT or, in this case, mechanical ventilation. When you have significant ventilator dyssynchrony or you're using a mode of ventilation that's not adequate for a patient, you're really causing them more harm. You're making their work of breathing increased, and while you're trying to rest them by putting them on mechanical ventilation or treat an underlying cause, you're actually causing them more harm in the process. So hopefully um, this isn't too basic for you guys. I've put a worksheet I think it's up at the top, and I've handed out some to some of you guys here. And you can see it's fairly empty. It doesn't have many words on it. And that's because I want to see, um, for you guys, to see what you can draw kind of before I give my talk. Um, and then afterwards, hopefully, you can easily fill in this, this paper without any difficulty. So the objectives are to understand what waveforms you're looking at on a ventilator monitor, determine how patients are being ventilated, and kind of equally important to those two, identify problems that occur during mechanical ventilation. So the role of ventilator waveform analysis in, in ventilated patients is to recognize a real-time change in a patient's condition. So it's, it's not just something that's there. The patient's ventilated and the waveforms are on the screen. When I'm rounding and I'm standing outside of the room and the team thinks I'm not paying attention to them, I'm looking at the ventilator display, and I'm looking to see whether this patient's synchronous, whether the patient has auto-peep, whether the patient is getting um, enough air in and out, and what their tidal volume is if they're set on a, on a pressure mode, or what their pressure is if they're set on a, on a volume mode. So it really is a way to, to identify a real-time change. You can also optimize ventilator settings and treatments, determine the effectiveness of the settings that you've, you've prescribed, detect adverse events of mechanical ventilation, and minimize the risk of ventilator-induced complications. So the parameters that you need to be familiar with are flow, pressure, volume, and time. And when you put these together, you're going to come up with scalars or waveforms that you need to be familiar with. And the main ones are pressure versus time, flow versus time, and volume versus time. So when we talk about ventilation, we're talking about pressure modes and volume modes. There's pressure-cycled modes that deliver a fixed pressure at a variable volume, and then volume-cycled modes that deliver a fixed volume at variable pressures. So you guys know this, but the pressure-cycled modes, pressure support, pressure control, CPAP, BiPAP, volume-cycled modes are, are controlled mechanical ventilation, which we don't use typically. So the Draeger, uh, if you guys use the Draeger over at Shock Trauma and we're moving to the Draeger, CMV is really ACVC, right? So it's really assist-control volume-cycled. Um, 
then you have intermittent mandatory ventilation, and then in, in much to, to my chagrin in the uh, in the SICU where you have SIMV, which people like to use a lot, but has evidence that says that it's not a, a very good mode for, for patient work. So when we talk about pressure versus volume, you're going to talk about basically pressure targeted and volume targeted. And when you look at the variables that you set, they're different, right? So, so if you look at a volume, a tidal volume, for a volume target, that's going to be constant. But for a pressure target, that's going to be variable. And I hammer home to my team that I want to know, if you've set someone on a pressure-targeted mode, I want to know what those tidal volumes are, because that's important to me, to know if this person's getting big volumes, little volumes, mediocre volumes. In a volume-targeted mode, I want to know what the pressure is. So the volume is going to be constant, if you set it at 350, but the pressure is going to be variable. And I don't want to just know what the peak inspiratory pressure is. I want to know what the peak alveolar pressure is. I want to know what the alveolar distending pressure is because that's what's going to cause micro and macro barotrauma. Um, in terms of flow pattern and pressure target, by definition, it's a decelerating flow. And in volume target, you can set the flow. So on the Draeger, for example, you can set the flow to be a square wave flow, a decelerating flow, an accelerating flow, or a sinusoidal flow. And that has implications on comfort for the patient. In terms of peak flow... For a pressure target, it's variable. It's going to be constant with a volume target. And then inspiratory time, you're going to set it on the pressure target. And for volume target, you're setting it as well. So for some modes, you don't set the, the inspiratory time, but you set the flow, and that's going to determine what the inspiratory time is. And then the minimum rate is set for both of them as well. And obviously, we want our patients to, to potentially be able to breathe above the rate we set. So one of my biggest pet peeves is on patients that, uh, that are, are doing fine on the ventilator. They're intubated for whatever reason. It's getting better. You set them at a rate of 18 or 20, and it's set at that, and it just stays at that. I, I want to see rates that are lower so that they can breathe above that if they want to. But if they don't want to, you know, all of us in this room are breathing 20 times a minute right now. So with that, let's go to question number one. So question number one... Um, I'm not sure how the people who this is being broadcasted to will, will, will um, see this, but, uh, but we, we want to answer the question of in pressure mode and volume mode, what do the flow, pressure, and volume waveforms look like? So take a second to draw it out on your paper. I want to see what the flow will look like in a pressure mode, what the volume in the volume mode, what the pressure will look like, and what the volume will look like. So I'm going to move on. Um, and we're going to talk about the easiest one first, and that's volume. So this is what a volume waveform should look like no matter which mode you're in. During inspiration, you're going to get an inspiratory um, volume that goes in, and then during expiration, it goes out, and this is going to be your tidal volume that's delivered. So that's the easiest answer on that form. So that's the same for whether it's a pressure mode or a volume mode. You're going to get a volume that goes in that's going to look like this. So now let's talk about Pressure ventilation. So in pressure ventilation, if you remember the slide that I showed you before, we said that you're going to have, by definition, a decelerating flow. And so the way I teach this to, to the students when I'm talking to them is it's all about triangles and rectangles. So if you have a decelerating flow, you have a nice triangle here. As your tidal volume goes in, initially you get a peak flow, and then it starts to taper off, and this is the end of inspiration. Your pressure, because you've set the pressure on, on pressure ventilation, your pressure is going to stay constant. So this is a nice rectangle or square. This is a rectangle, not a square, but basically flat, right? So a constant pressure. And with that, when you first go in, you're going to get a high flow. And then as your time that you've set goes on, 
the flow will decrease, and at the set time, your breath will terminate. Does that make sense to everybody? So this is what it should look like in pressure ventilation. Decelerating flow, square pressure, meaning a constant pressure that's set. Now, it won't look like this. So this is pressure control. It won't look like this with pressure support, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So in volume ventilation, remember I told you that you can set, depending on the type of ventilator, you can set the type of flow. So in a decelerating flow pattern, basically this looks almost identical to a pressure mode, right? So you get a decelerating flow, you get a pressure that's, that's almost a rectangle, and you get a certain amount of tidal volume. The biggest difference is this right here, and that's that your breath is not terminated by time, necessarily, but it's going to be terminated by volume. When you reach a certain volume that you've set, your breath will terminate in a volume control or volume targeted mode of mechanical ventilation. In pressure support, you're going to get a pressure waveform that's going to look like a rectangle, but there's this little additional blip here, and that's the patient triggering the breath. Because in pressure support, you're not setting how many breaths you're going to give the patient, right? You're just setting how much support they're going to get via pressure, and they're going to take as many breaths as they want to. So they trigger the ventilator, they get a set amount of pressure support, and then you get a decelerating flow, their breath is terminated, and they have, a, they have right here a set amount of volume that they get for that amount of pressure support. So here, the breath is terminated by reaching a certain amount of flow, and you can set that on, on your ventilator. You can say that I want to cut off at 25% of peak flow, I want to cut off at 50% of peak flow, and that will become important in your COPD patients if you have them on pressure support because those patients, you, you want them to have a short I time and a long E time. So if you cut this breath off, if you give them too much time to take an inspiratory breath, then they won't have as much time to take an expiratory breath, right? So in, in a, if someone's breathing 20 times a minute, they're going to get three seconds per breath. And if it takes them 1.5 seconds to get the breath in, then they're only going to have 1.5 seconds to get it out. So in COPD patients, you might want to have your RT adjust the flow cutoff to be a higher percentage of peak flow so that the breath is cut off at 50% of peak flow, giving them more time to exhale. So that's important to, to recognize. And this, what else could this be right here? If, if I didn't tell you that this was pressure support ventilation, what else could this be right here? You have a decelerating flow. You have a square pressure. What could it be? Yeah, it could be volume, right? It could, it could be volume that's just a patient-triggered breath, right? So in, in volume control, if you set your rate at 12, but the patient's breathing 15, some of your breaths are going to look like this, where they trigger the ventilator, they get a flow, they get a certain amount of pressure for that period of the breath. The breath terminates based on the tidal volume being reached that you've set on the ventilator. And then at the end of that, the breath terminates and the pressure goes down. And the biggest difference between kind of a, volume, a pure volume controlled mode, um, like ACVC or assist control volume control and SIMV, is that when for each breath on your ACVC, you're going to get the same tidal volume that you've set. So a lot of people thought that you could use SIMV as a weaning mode of mechanical ventilation so that you could just keep setting the rate lower and lower, and then the patient would have to take over 
extra breaths and do it at whatever tidal volume they want or with a little pressure support. But there's been plenty of data that says that that's actually um, inaccurate and we don't need to wean patients from the ventilator like that, that we want to liberate patients. And that's a whole, whole different talk. So in volume modes with a constant flow, so if I told you that there was decelerating flow, accelerating flow, sinusoidal flow, what's the fourth flow that I, I mentioned before that this would be considered? Square, right? So square, this is square wave flow. And so that's a constant flow rate. You can see now that you have a square at the top, so you're going to expect a triangle for your pressure. So for pressure, you can see that as flow stays constant, pressure is going to slowly ramp up until your flow terminates, your pressure then goes down, and you get a set amount of tidal volume. I can tell you that this is not as comfortable for patients because they don't like to have a set flow rate and have pressure build up. They like to have it the other way around with a decelerating flow. And this is one of the biggest problems with the servo eyes, um, which are the ventilators we have in the MICU, is that when you put them on a volume, a pure volume control mode, not PRVC, but a volume controlled mode, by definition, the flow is square, and patients don't typically like that. So let's move on to some pressure waveforms here. So in controlled ventilation where you've set the rate and you've set the, the, um, the pressure, um, well, I, I guess actually this is not a, um, a pressure mode, and, and this, is, this will be an AC mode, assist control with volume. The pressure will go up, and these are all mandatory breaths. And then we talked about the, the trigger right here. So in these, these are breaths that some of them are assisted and some of them are mandatory. So if you've set the rate at 12, they're breathing 15, then 12 of your breaths are going to look like this, and three of your breaths will look like this. And then in a purely assisted ventilation mode where, where you don't have a set rate necessarily, then all of your breaths will look like this. So in a, in a um, volume support mode, for example, all of your breaths will be assisted. So you'll see that initial deflection in the waveform and then the, and then the pressure going in. So when you look at this waveform, I want you to think about a couple of things. And one is, what, when we look at a triangle, if it's not a triangle, why is it not a triangle? So it, it, in a typical breath that's passively given, then you get a nice triangle. In an actively inspired breath, you get the trigger, and then you get in there. And all this right here is the patient's work of breathing. So all of this underneath it is, is going to be volume um, if you do a, a algebraic conversion of this. But right here, all of this is going to be what the patient's work of breathing is. And so that's okay if, you, if your patient's work of breathing is, is not overcoming their metabolic demand or if, they, if they're doing okay on the ventilator. But in some patients, you don't want to see this being too scalloped in. And what you'll see is, in fact, instead of a nice triangle, you'll see that initial part deflected downward. And this patient will be having too much work of breathing to initiate their breath, and you need to think about sedating them more, you need to think about giving them more flow, you need to think about changing their mode of ventilation to take into account for that. And then you'll always come down to what your set level is of PEEP. So if your PEEP is set at five, then this will always be five, and then at the top of this, that'll be your peak inspiratory pressure. So in most of our patients in the ICU that are ARDS, we don't really care about the peak inspiratory pressure too much. We care about a different pressure. What pressure is it that we care about? Say it again. Good, plateau, so the alveolar descending pressure. So when you see this, the, the PIP, the peak inspiratory pressure, the plateau by definition always has to be below the peak inspiratory pressure. So when you're reporting vent settings to us and, and you say the peak is 25, then I'm comfortable with that for the most part because I know that the plateau is definitely not above 30. But today on rounds, 
my med student, where is she? Pooja over there said that the, the peak was 35 or 36, and I wanted to know what the plateau was because it doesn't necessarily mean that the plateau is okay if the peak is high. So this is an example of how you get plateau, and on the ventilator, you do an end inspiratory hold, and you'll see that your peak pressure will drop, and you'll get this nice plateau. And that plateau pressure will be calculated on the ventilator, and that's important to us for our ARDS patients because according to ARDSNET protocol, a plateau pressure of greater than 35, we like it ideally to be less than 30, but in some of our patients, at least definitely less than 35, those patients are at risk for barotrauma. So in this, you can see here that you, you get your breath going, you go up, Number one is going to be your peak inspiratory pressure, and number two is going to be your plateau pressure. And this is the pause that you have. And then when you let go of the end, expiratory, end, end inspiratory hold, you begin expiration. So what do we use an end expiratory hold for? For auto-peep. Good. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So what cycles of pressure control or pressure support breath off? So we just, we just talked about that, right? So uh, what will cycle a pressure control or pressure support breath off. So what is the answer to this one right here? So if it's flow cycled off, what kind of breath is that? Say it louder. Pressure support. Good. So this is a pressure support breath. And what gives you a clue to that are a couple of things. One is it's flow cycled off, which we just talked about in our COPD patients. You want to set the flow so that it's not necessarily at 10 or 15% of the peak flow. But also, this is a triggered breath. Whereas down here, it optionally can be patient-triggered. So what kind of breath is time-cycled off? Pressure control, right. So in these settings here, when you set the pressure support level, you'll get a certain amount of pressure. Flow will cycle it off, and you'll go to baseline. In here, your time is going to cycle it off. So whatever your eye time is set at will be what cycles your breath off. So let's look at some other pressure time curves. So here, when you look at this, this is A to B is going to be inspiration, and B to C is going to be expiration. The pressure that the airway, that the ventilator calculates for you that's underneath this is your mean airway pressure. And the mean airway pressure doesn't really mean a lot to us. The mean airway pressure um, for patients that have ARDS or patients that are on the ventilator, as long as you're getting kind of the volumes that you want you're okay with that. The peak pressure um, and, the, and, and the plateau pressure are really what we look at. So can someone tell me an instance where your peak pressure and your plateau pressure can be elevated? Disease processes? Peak and plateau, good. So abdominal compartment syndrome, you're definitely going to get elevated peaks and plateaus because you're not getting the, the you're needing more pressure to generate the volumes that you're that you have your ventilator set at. What else? You must be a surgeon. Yeah. Say it again. So obstructive disease. So obstructive disease, so you're talking about bronchospasm. So bronchospasm won't elevate your plateau pressure, but will elevate your peak pressure, right? So you're getting big airway bronchospasm, so your plateau pressure, your alveolar descending pressure, which your alveoli is seeing, is not any different but your peak pressure will go up. So that's one thing, bronchoconstriction, biting the ET tube, all of those things can make the peak go up, right? What else can make your peak and plateau go up? So restrictive lung disease. So a stiff lung, you can have elevated peaks and plateaus. What else? 
ARDS, right? So the classic one is ARDS. What about pulmonary edema? Pulmonary edema as well can make, make both go up as well. So when you look at this, you want to you think about what your peak is, what your plateau is, and if you have a sudden change in your patient, if the peak has gone up and the plateau has gone up, think about what the compliance has done of the lung. But if one has gone up and the other hasn't, then you want to think about other things that are treatable causes that you can do something about. Patient triggering, I think we've, we've talked about this enough now. When you see that downward deflection, that's going to be evidence to you that you're vent was triggered by the patient. On our servos, the color is different on the, on the uh, initial part of the waveform. Um, on the Draegers, I'm not 100% sure. I think the color is different as well. So when you get your peak pressure here and you have a nice triangle, that means that you're, in your patient you have adequate flow. And this is um, in a patient that you've set with volume control. And if you have, you have flow that's adequate, this will be nice and linear. But if it's not adequate, this is going to be scalloped either in or out. And that's going to lead to um, something called the stress index that I'm going to talk about in a second. But remember, whenever you see these waveforms, if it's not a nice triangle, you want to ask yourself, what's happening with this patient that, that is making this be either pulled in or pu pushed up? So in terms of plateau, make sure that when you check the plateau that you have an adequate plateau time. This is not going to be enough to equilibrate. And in fact, in most of your patients, to successfully check in a plateau and make it the most accurate, you want to make sure your patient is not involved in, the, in, in, in kind of the ventilator, right? So that the ventilator is doing what it needs to do, the patient's well sedated or even paralyzed to check that. But I don't suggest paralyzing your patient to check the plateau. Just make sure that they're not dyssynchronous with the vent. So let's talk about the stress index, because that's something that I don't think we think about too often. So in AC volume ventilation, using a constant flow, you look at the pressure times scalar. When you do that, if it's a nice linear change in pressure in response to a set flow, then your stress, stress index is 1 by definition. But if you have an upward concavity to, to that line, then that means that you're, you're lung has got decreased compliance and that, you're, that you are over-distending the lungs. So whether it be that you have too much tidal volume, whether it means you need to change your mode of mechanical ventilation, um, the stress index here is greater than one and it indicates decreased lung compliance. When it's concave down, then that's better lung compliance and the potential that you can recruit more alveoli by either increasing your pressure a little bit or changing your volume a little bit or um, changing your flow. And in this case, the stress index is less than one. And, and for all of this, just like the plateau, you need to make sure that the patient is not having extra efforts to, to take breaths, that they're out of the picture. But this is something important to look at because I can tell you that when we look at the ventilators in, in, in the ICU, even right now you can come up and, and just walk by the rooms, I see this one all too often. And this puts our patient at risk for bearer trauma. So let's move on to some flow versus time curves. So flow, um, if you have a square wave flow, that's your inspiration right there, and then you're going to have expiration. And descending ramp is going to look like that. Ascending ramp would look like that. And sinusoidal will look like a, like a, a hill. And you can see here, if you look at this right here is that when you, if you kept the flow rate the same on these patients, on, the, on this patient, when you change from a constant flow to a descending ramp flow, you're going to lengthen your inspiratory time. So in some of these patients that you're worried about the eye time, like COPD patients, you want to make sure that you adjust the flow accordingly 
to give more flow, more peak flow, so that your eye time is shorter to get the same volume. And then on the ventilators, the servos, you can set an inspiratory pause, which will be placed in between your inspiration and expiration. And I'll tell you that the RTs like to put these pauses in. My my bias is that these pauses actually cause more dyssynchrony with the patient because if they're actually awake and they have a pause set in there and they want to do something, they want to take a breath or they want to, it feels uncomfortable to them and they end up um, double triggering the ventilator. So be careful of these inspiratory pauses. So when you set the inspiratory time, this is in pressure control. If the eye time is too short, you're going to get initiation of expiration before the patient has felt like they've gotten their full breath in. If it's Regular, if it's a if it's a normal eye time, then you should see the ramp come down here and then expiration start. And if it's too long, you'll see that that pause that I was talking about. So expiratory flow rate and changes in expiratory resistance um, are important in patients with obstructive lung disease. So you can see here that this is the inspiratory limb, this is the expiratory limb, this is the expiratory time, and this is the the peak flow for expiration. When you change, just like I was mentioning to you, that, um, that if you can change that peak expiratory flow and, and make it larger, then you're going to get your breath out and give them, you're going to shorten basically the, um, the expiratory time. And this is going to mean to you when you see this, that the resistance for your patient has changed. They have a lower expiratory resistance. So the peak expiratory flow will go up, they'll get their breath out in a shorter period of time, and the resistance to getting breath out is different. So in a patient with bronchospasm, for example, you won't see this because the, the resistance is going to be high and they're going to have trouble getting that breath out. So the rise time, which is another setting that we set on the ventilator in, in volume modes, is how quickly the set pressure is reached. And you, you want to aim for a moderate rise in your, in your um, rise time so that <clears throat> you don't get pressure overshoot. So if you get a fast rise, you're going to get a, a, a quick time to get to the set pressure. And if you look at the flow, it'll go up higher because by definition, your flow has to increase to get the same amount of breath in that you've set. So you want to aim for a moderate rise, not a slow rise or a fast rise. So we talked about this briefly, but just changing the ramp shape for your flow we could cause asynchrony. So in this case, when you went from a square wave to a decelerating, you didn't change the flow. And in this person, the, expert, the inspiratory time got longer. So if they're taking 20 breaths, just like the previous example, they're taking 20 breaths, three seconds each. When you've lengthened the eye time by changing the, the flow pattern, then you've basically shortened their expiratory time. And they're not going to like that if they're an obstructive patient. So that's going to result in them getting not enough air out, and this is an example of auto-peep. So you want to try and increase their flow so that you get the same amount of expiratory time. So let's talk about pressure volume loops. In a, so in a mandatory breath, you're going to go in a counterclockwise position. So this is a breath that you're giving through the ventilator. The breath goes in, positive pressure. You reach your, your volume that you've set or your pressure that you've set, and then expiration begins. In a spontaneous mode, it's actually clockwise. So this makes intuitive sense because you have to generate negative pressure to take a breath in. So you take negative pressure in, your inspiration goes um, till you're done, done your breath, and then you expire and you keep going like this. Now, in a, in a 
mode of ventilation where you can get assisted breaths, what do you guys think that the, uh, the pressure volume curve is going to look like in an assisted breath? So you're going to get that initial deflection into the negative. So this is just an example of worker breathing. So in spontaneous breathing, if you see this, that means that there's a lot of work generated to get that breath going, and then, they, and then it looks like a normal breath. But in an assisted breath, you're going to get that initial deflection going negative, and then as you get your positive pressure going in, then you start going counterclockwise. So in an assisted breath, you'll start out clockwise and then switch to counterclockwise and then come back down here. And this is an, a, a good example when you're looking at a waveform of somebody that, that has um, pressure support or an assisted breath on volume or pressure modes for assist control. When the pressure volume loop changes, it's going to tell you something, right? So in this case, the tidal volume has stayed the same, but you now need more pressure to get the same tidal volume. So what kind of patient would this be? So the compliance is changing, right? So you can look at your pressure volume loop to just tell whether your compliance is changing. And we don't probably do this enough in our, in, in our ICU patients with ARDS just to see how their ARDS is progressing. We just kind of look at their tidal volume and their pressure and say, oh, well, they're generating less, you know, they're, they're requiring more pressure to get the same tidal volume. Well, but this is a, a pictorial view to see that. And you start to see that you're getting more pressure, so a higher pressure to get the same tidal volume. So let's go into identifying problems via waveform analysis. So that was the background that you need to really kind of think about now this doesn't look right, right? So um, I'm going to have you guys draw two ways to identify autopeep by looking at a flow versus time scalar. So draw for me on that picture on number two, two ways that you would identify autopeep on a patient. So one we just showed you just a couple of slides ago, so that should be an easy one for everyone. The second one is, is sometimes not as as easy. So the first way is what we looked at previously, and that's that on the expiratory loop or the expiratory limb of flow, if you do not reach baseline, by definition, you're having autopeep. So if this person was expiring their, their breath, and right here, their next breath started, that's an example of autopeep. You can't quantify autopeep by looking at this. All you can say is qualitatively, yes, they have autopeep or no, they don't have autopeep based on, on that parameter. But if they do have autopeep, then that's when you want to do an end expiratory hold to try and measure the intrinsic peep of the system. So can anyone tell me what a second way to measure, auto, to, to look at this scalar and say this person has autopeep for sure? So it'll still be on the expiratory limb, right? It'll still be saying that the expiratory limb looks different. By definition, auto-peep means that the amount of air you're putting in is not equal to the amount of air that's coming out, right? So your breath is... In, so if you've set the tidal volume at 350, your breath might be initiating when 300 cc's of that air has come out. So your next breath starts out, so you have 50 cc's of trapped air. The next breath goes in, you have more trapped air. The next breath goes in, you have more trapped air. And... In, in the multiple choice questions that we've, we've given to you guys for, or that you'll get for the post, um, kind of whatever the post test is that Dr. McCurdy has you guys doing, there's a question about a patient who gets intubated and has obstructive lung disease, has um, uh, COPD. They get intubated, and this happened to me when I, a few years ago, 
when I was in the ICU, I came on in the morning to take over um, for the night attending, and she was in room 28 with a GI bleeder, and she said, we just intubated room 17. The patient was... was um, he had bad COPD. We intubated the patient. Now he's hypotensive. Can you put in a central line, um, start him on pressors, whatever? We go by the room, and we saw the waveform. And it didn't show this, but you could look at the amount of volume going in and the amount of volume coming out, and there was a big discrepancy. So when you see a, um, a COPD patient, when you see a COPD patient, if this volume right here does not look like it equals this volume right here, then that might be an indication to you that this person has autopeep. So a lot of times in this patient, what it was was that as soon as that that expiratory flow started, it came all the way back up here and then touched the line and came here. So this amount of air clearly, or this amount of volume clearly didn't equal the volume here. So there are three ways to tell if someone has autopeep. One is, does the line come back to baseline? Transition from expiratory to inspiratory occurs without the flow returning to zero. Is the expiratory flow volume not indicative of how much inspiratory volume was given? And when you're looking at your numbers on the side, is the inspiratory volume much higher than the expiratory volume? Right? So, so the other thing that you think about when you see that volume discrepancy is a leak. So question number three on the back. Now, this is harder. So this is the um, – I gave you the hard part, actually, and that's the equation – um, but I wanted you to identify and fill in the four things that uh, are the variables here, and I'm going to help you do that. And then the second part of question three is what can we do to reduce autopeep? So in terms of intrinsic peep, we're going to be looking at the tidal volume, and that's divided by the compliance times the E, or log, to the expiratory time divided by the respiratory compliance times the respiratory expiratory resistance minus one. There's no way that you and I are going to calculate this on all of our patients. But this, when you do an end expiratory hold, this is exactly what the ventilator is calculating for these patients. So what can we do to reduce autopeep? What's the first thing we can do to reduce autopeep? So good. So figure out a way to increase your expiratory time, right? So to do that, you're ultimately going to have to decrease your inspiratory time. And to decrease your inspiratory time, if you're in a pressure mode, you can either set it to be decreased, or if you're in a volume mode, you want to increase the flow so that you get more flow or a faster rise time to get more flow to your patient. And then that way you have more time to expire your breath, right? What else can we do? Andrew, what else can we do? Yeah, so, so you can decrease your tidal volume. In some of your patients, you're going to be limited by your acid-base parameters, and, and if you decrease your tidal volume and they really wanted that tidal volume, then they're going to increase their rate. So it could be counterproductive for, for what you really are trying to do, right? So if they're breathing above the ventilator at a fast rate, you may not be able to adjust this by changing the flow or changing the, um, the I time or E time, right? So if they're breathing way faster, you won't be able to do it. So if they're breathing fast, what do you want to do? Yeah, good. So if they're having bronchospasm that's causing them to not be able to get their breath out, you can try and treat the underlying problem and give them bronchodilators to, to alleviate that bronchospasm. What else can you do? How do you slow their rate, Mario? Yeah, so, so 
try not to paralyze them first, but uh, maybe sedate them a little bit. Maybe, maybe they're anxious. Maybe you need to, to calm them down a little bit, and so give them a little bit of sedation. What else can you do if all that fails? Um, so you can definitely change the ventilator mode to try and give them a better mode of ventilation that gives them gives you control over how much flow they're giving. Because in, ca- in some cases, you can't control in the ventilator how much flow they're getting. And, and some modes are definitely better for, for some patients than others. What else can you do? Yeah, so if you are pushed against the wall and you're not making progress here, before you paralyze someone, you can in- increase their extrinsic PEEP. And that'll help with your total kind of extrinsic PEEP goes up. And by definition, intrinsic PEEP will come down and the patient's worker breathing will go down because they don't have to overcome that entire resistance that they have um, or the entire pressure that they have to generate to get their next breath. So adding extrinsic PEEP can make a difference. So when your flow is set too low, that's when you're going to get in your pressure time scalar, that's when you're going to get your scalloped look here. And you, I, I can tell you that you're going to see this on at least 25 to 30% of your patients in the ICU, which means that they're not getting an adequate setting on their ventilator and you're making them breathe harder than they need to breathe on the ventilator. When you start seeing blips in, in your um, rise of your, of your pressure, then that's air starvation. This is them trying to get a breath in in the middle of that that breath that you've already given them. So you want to start thinking about air starvation, flow hunger in these patients. And the patient in this case is outbreathing what the set flow is. We talked about changes in compliance. So um, by, by pulling this further out, you're getting a higher pressure for the same tidal volume. So this, this is uh, compliance, looking at the, um, the volume and pressure waveform or scalar. And then over distension. So when you look at this, um, we talked about how when you are mechanically ventilated and it's a mandatory breath, you're going to be in a counterclockwise position. So this is this green is going to be your inspiratory limb and the yellow is going to be your expiratory limb. And if you pull this out too far, that's going to be over distension. So over distension has massive effects on your patient because you're going to be above your upper inflection point, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, and you're going to end up getting barotrauma. So this is where you get barotrauma. If you're below your lower inflection point, so A is basically your pressure, your peak inspiratory pressure, right? So B is going to be your upper inflection point. C is going to be your lower inflection point. What if you're ventilating someone below your lower inflection point? What happens to these patients? Adelectrauma, right? So in, in, if you're ventilating them below C, then you're going to get atelectasis. You're not going to get them opening up their airways like you want them to. If you're above B, you're going to get barotrauma. So the goal is to try and ventilate someone in between B and C as close to, to the upper inflection point as possible without going over. So I want you to take a look at the ventilator waveforms, and I want you to recognize immediately when you see someone who's ineffectively triggering. So in this case, this doesn't project very well, but if you look here, it's that double, that that kind of um, uh, patient effort that's going right in the middle of the waveform. And in this, the patient's wasting their effort. So instead of resting them on the ventilator, you're working them harder. So it's going to take longer to get them off the vent. And this says it leads to fatigue, tachycardia, increased metabolic needs, and causes could be auto-peep, muscle weakness, inappropriate sensitivity settings. So that's the other setting that I didn't talk about on the ventilator, and that's sensitivity. What 
are you setting as a sensitivity to trigger a breath? And it can be pressure or flow. And you want to make sure that it's at the appropriate level so that you're not getting a little kind of movement to generate a breath, but you're actually getting a, a real effort that generates your next breath. So here, you can see here on the flow waveform that this patient double triggered. And when you double trigger, you end up getting a lot higher peak airway pressure. And so this isn't comfortable for the patient either. So let's talk about flow volume loops now. So when you guys were in medical school, you looked at pulmonary function tests, and you had to look at flow volume loops. So the bottom here is expiration, and the top is inspiration. This is a spontaneous mode of mechanical ventilation, and you're going in this clockwise motion, and expiration goes out, inspiration comes in. This is a controlled mode. You can see that the flow is higher in this, and then this is an assisted mode. And you can't really tell by looking at these two whether one is assisted or one is not based on this, mode, uh, based on this um, scalar. Um, in terms of volume, flow is on the y-axis, volume is on the x-axis, so the tidal volume is going to be right here. So if you look at the number right here, that's going to be your tidal volume. And again, when you look at this waveform, the amount of volume with inspiration has got to equal expiration. So if you saw this waveform going like this and ending right here, then that would mean that you're not getting as much expiratory volume as you were getting inspiratory volume. Here is an example of that, and I showed it to you here as an example of an ET tube or circuit leak. So if you see that the volume is not coming back to baseline, either this person has auto peep or there's a leak in the circuit. And that'll show up on the, um, on the volume waveform as basically inspiration, expiration, and then the next breath starts in before expiration comes down to the zero line. So this is an example of an obstructive pattern for a patient. So it's scooped out here. And you can see that this concavity means that they're having a tougher time not initially getting their breath out, but as their small airways collapse, they're having a tougher time getting their breath out. When you look at bronchodilator response, this is before a bronchodilator. If you give the bronchodilator and this is what your waveform looks like, that's a bad bronchodilator response. But if you give it in your, in your flow goes up on expiration, and you get a nice line here, then that means that you were able to open those airways up, and this might be a way to treat auto-peep by bronchodilating someone to give them more expiratory flow and more time to get that breath out. So again, looking at the volume pressure scalars, the pressure here is the minimum pressure required to prevent collapse of the airways, and then you want to be under the upper inflection point to prevent over-distension. When you look at this waveform, if you're all the way out here, if you pull this tail all the way out here, this is inappropriate tidal volume. So in these patients, these might be ARDS patients with poor lung compliance, and when you look at their tidal volume, it might be too high for them. So it may, even if it's at 6 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, this might be a patient that you might need to go down to 5 cc's or even 4 cc's to get them to not have a risk of barotrauma. Skip that. So, so this is um, looking at your flow volume and pressure volume loops before and after bronchodilators. So here, this patient, you can see here that, that um, before bronchodilators, they're, they're um, looking at their waveform. It looks broader. And after, you were able to, to generate, use less pressure to generate the same amount of tidal volume. These decreased compliance we talked about. Now, if you're 
volume is the same and it's not that you're moving this down, but it's just broadening it, then that means increased resistance. And so that's what I just showed you a picture of with the bronchodilators, that if you tighten it, then that means you're needing less pressure to get the same amount of volume. And that means that your, your lung resistance has improved. But if you have worsening resistance, you're going to see that this broadens, meaning that the pressure that you need is going to be higher to generate the same tidal volume. And then the upper inflection point, the lower inflection point, we've talked about avoiding overdistension, avoiding adelect trauma. So using the flow volume and pressure graphic displays, you want to confirm your mode function. You want to detect auto-peep. Look and make sure that this patient has good patient ventilator synchrony. We talked about two types of trauma today. We talked about volume trauma and barotrauma. There's, there's a third type of trauma in ARDS patients. Who can tell me what the third type of trauma that we get in ARDS patients that um, happens with poor patient ventilator synchrony? Biotrauma. So what's biotrauma? Who said that? Bethany. What's biotrauma? So in biotrauma, by, by basically having bad patient ventilator synchrony, so if a patient's desynchronous, they're fighting the ventilator, and they're re releasing systemic cytokines. So the lung is producing cytokines that then go into the systemic circulation, and those cytokines then cause systemic manifestation. So if you have um, you know, TNF-alpha, you have IL-1, you have um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, basically, that are going to go and result in biotrauma. So you want to make sure that your patient has good synchrony. So the theory that you should never paralyze your patient has kind of gone out of the window. And there was a New England Journal article that said that maybe paralyzing some of our patients to get patient ventilator synchrony, not continuous paralytics, but a dose of paralytics to get control of the ventilator is necessary. And we do do that in our ARDS patients. You want to assess and adjust the trigger levels, whether it's pressure or flow, to make sure that you get good waveforms. Measure the work of breathing. You can adjust tidal volume and minimize over-descension by looking at these waveforms. Assess whether your bronchodilators are actually making a, a difference. See if there's a leak in your equipment and determine appropriate PEEP levels. You can also evaluate the adequacy of your inspiratory time, detect the presence and rate of continuous leaks, um, look and see if your terminating of your pressure support breath is actually adequate for the type of disease your patient has, and determine what the appropriate rise time is. I hope that that wasn't too basic for you guys. I think the main point of this was to, to get you to identify what your waveforms are, what they should look like in your different modes of ventilation, and what differences in those waveforms mean in terms of a patient not doing well on the ventilator. Um, and with that, I'd be happy to take any questions. So one thing I think, especially on the trauma side, if... Uh one example of increased plateau pressure and increased uh, peak inspiratory pressure is tension pneumo. So always keep that in the back of your mind as well. Easily fixable, easily you know, identifiable as well, uh, as long as you keep that in your differential. Um, a couple other things. So first of all, can you explain for the crowd what PRVC is? Just because I think we deal a lot with that in the medical side. Yeah, so I actually, so, so Mike, Mike set me up with that one because he, he, he's getting tired of answering the question of what, what PRVC actually is. So he told me about a few minutes after I finished rounding and a few minutes before I had to come here, but I added a couple of slides really quickly about PRVC um, just for that. It's a dual mode of mechanical ventilation, and we use it in the MICU a lot, and there are benefits and there are disadvantages of it, and I want to just go over them quickly. The attempt is to get to be able to use both the benefits of volume and pressure in your patient, right? So it basically is going to give three test breaths, 
And with those test breaths, it's going to identify what the compliance and the resistance of the lung is. And then it's going to say, okay, you've set a targeted volume of 350, for example, and this is the minimum pressure I need to generate that targeted volume based on those three test breaths. What it does, though, is it will not guarantee you a set tidal volume because it, the lung compliance changes on a breath-to-breath -breath basis, as does resistance potentially. If there's secretions in the tube, you take a breath in, you take a breath out, that secretion moves. Um, so it'll say, I'm targeting this rate, I'm targeting this amount of volume, and then it'll measure the exhaled tidal volume on the next breath. And if that volume is less than what you've set, it'll drive the pressure up on the next breath to try and meet your targeted volume. If, it's, if, if, your, targeted, if your exhaled volume is higher, then it'll decrease the amount of pressure it used to get the same amount of tidal volume that you're aiming for. So in, in a picture here, basically, it gives the test breath, it measures the tidal volume, it compares it to what you've set the tidal volume to be. If it's more than that, then it's going to decrease your inspiratory pressure. If it's less, it'll increase it. And if it's right around where you want it to be, it'll give you the same inspiratory pressure. So this is great because it, it really uses the minimum amount of pressure needed to generate that tidal volume, but it doesn't have the variability in tidal volume that pressure control can have, meaning that in pressure control, once you set that pressure control, that's the same pressure you're going to get for every breath. And if the lung compliance changes, if it gets better, for example, the tidal volume will be bigger, and that might be harmful in your ARDS patient. So it's a dual mode. It's pressure regulated, so meaning the, 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 you can set on your ventilator a peak pressure. I do not want to go above this pressure, and it'll stay, it'll alarm when it's five centimeters of water pressure below that peak set that you've set, and it'll use the minimum amount of pressure to target the tidal volume to what you want it to be. Advantages, it adapts to the patient's resistance and compliance. So Carl Shanholtz always likes to say it's like having an intern in the room checking the compliance and resistance with each breath, but the intern's actually in the ventilator. So it's good for patients whose compliance is dynamic and you want to use the minimum amount of pressure to generate that tidal volume. Um, the tidal volume varies less than with pressure control. It's by definition a decelerating flow pattern, which is comfortable for our patients. And like with volume control, where you limit the inspiratory flow, you don't limit it with PRVC. And so patients sometimes feel more comfortable because they can get high inspiratory flow. So in, in, for example, in a COPD patient, they might be more comfortable on PRVC because they can demand that higher inspiratory flow. It's not, it's not limited. But one of the things that I want you to be aware of is that you get varying mean airway pressures, which may or may not be a big deal. But when the patient is not comfortable and they're getting sicker, and their demand is going up, the ventilator is sensing that the patient's doing more. So it's giving you less support for each breath because it's saying, well, the, the, this guy's doing better. He's, he's got more demand. He's, he's generating more pressure on his own. So it's decreasing the amount of pressure with each breath. So a patient that's agitated is actually going to be harmed by PRVC because their agitation is going to be reflected by the ventilator as the patient doing work and it's gonna give you less and less breath. So I want you to be very careful in your agitated patients to use PRVC without first controlling them in, in terms of their agitation or their dyssynchrony. To, I, I know you touched on it a little bit in the, well, you definitely touched on it on your, in your talk, but I think, uh, Noah, could you, would you mind reviewing briefly um, in the morning when the fellow goes in the room, we wanna 
know what the compliance is and the resistance is in that individual patient? Do you mind just reiterating that on how to do it? Yeah, so, so when you're calculating, so first of all, your ventilator will do it for you, which is awesome. So you just push the buttons and look at the side column, and it'll say what your compliance is and your resistance is. Compliance, you're going to look at your, your um, pressure and your volume to determine what the compliance is. And when you look at your waveforms, you can see that your pressure divided by volume is going to give you your compliance. And in, in these patients, you want to make sure that your compliance in, in my mind, I, I'm more interested in what the plateau pressure is because I can extrapolate then what the compliance is because if the plateau's gone up, that's going to be a worse compliance in that patient. So an absolute number may not be beneficial to me on rounds, but if you tell me the absolute plateau pressure number, that will be beneficial because I know that I'm going to have to decrease my tidal volume to get, to get that plateau pressure lower so that the compliance is taken out of the picture um, in terms of determining what the patient's getting in terms of trauma, bear trauma, volume trauma, or biotrauma. Um, in terms of uh, when you go into the room in the morning, so f fellows here and, and, and faculty and, and residents, I can't emphasize to you enough that do not rely on your respiratory therapist to do all of this stuff for you. You need to go into the room and look and see what that person's peak is, what their plateau is, and look at their ventilator. Um, your, your house staff is going to get you the numbers of you know, what their blood pressure was overnight and all that stuff, but they are not going to know how to read that ventilator screen. That's really up to us as critical care docs. It's the modality that differentiates us from a hospitalist. We've got to know how to look at that ventilator. Look at the waveforms. Make sure that your squares and your triangles are, are how they should be. If they don't look like they should be, get your RT in there with you. Try and change around some of the settings. See if you can get them more comfortable. We had a patient when I first came on, um, on our team, a liver failure patient who was double triggering. I don't know how many days she'd been double triggering the vent for. We went in there and they said, we tried everything. The RT tried everything. They, they couldn't get her to stop double triggering. In, in about 30 seconds, we found a mode of mechanical ventilation for her where her double triggering stopped, her agitation was resolved, and you could use less sedation on these patients that you're trying to get a mental status on. So just changing the ventilator in different ways can really help your patient out dramatically. Other questions? Okay, great. Thank you, guys.